the first thing that strikes a traveler in the United States is the innumerable multitude of those who seek to emerge from their original condition. No Americans are devoid of a yearning desire to rise. All are constantly seeking to acquire property, power, and reputation. Alexei de Tocqueville Alexei de Tocqueville was a French diplomat and political scientist who toured the United States in the middle of the 1800s. He was out to discover the genius behind America. What was it that made it such a uniquely prosperous and promising nation? And one of the many fascinating discoveries he made about Americans was their work ethic, their sense of self-determination. As reflected in those words we just heard, I'll read them again. The first thing that strikes a traveler in the United States is the innumerable multitude of those who seek to emerge from their original condition. No Americans are devoid of a yearning desire to rise. All are constantly seeking to acquire property, power, and reputation. Ambition becomes a universal feeling. Now, 200 years later, that ambitious spirit is still very much alive in American culture. That desire to rise shows up in just about every aspect of American life. When it comes to school, we want to make the honor roll or the dean's list. When it comes to sports, we want to make the travel team or win our age bracket or cross the finish line of the 5 or 10K or who knows what else. When it comes to work, we want to climb the corporate ladder or better yet, start our own business or better yet, retire early in style and comfort. We want more followers and more likes on social media. We want our church to grow. We want our grass to grow. We want our kids and grandkids to have it better than we did. That's not just an American phenomenon. This uh, sense of uh, self-advancement, this desire to achieve, it's found in just about every society on earth and at just about every level of every society. In fact, the famous uh, psychologist, Abraham Maslow, identified this, uh, this desire to achieve as a primary motivator of human behavior. He explained that once we meet our needs for health and for safety, we begin working our way up that pyramid. We want to achieve meaningful relationships, and then we want to win the respect of our peers and colleagues, and then we want to actualize ourselves by fulfilling our potential as human beings. Now, as a textbook firstborn child and a card-carrying member of the baby boom generation and having spent most of my life in overachieving cities like New York and Boston, I understand this desire to rise. So is it a good thing or a bad thing? Is ambition something to celebrate or repent of? Is it a promise or a trap? During this month of August, we have been searching for meaning. As we gear up for a new year of school and work and church and family, we, as, we, as we set our sights on things to come and line up all that we're going to be doing, we're asking ourselves, what's the point? 
What are we hoping to accomplish this year? And, and will we be satisfied if we do accomplish it? So to answer those questions, we're going to one of the most mysterious and provocative books of the Bible, a book we call Ecclesiastes, named after the teacher. Ecclesiastes was written by an ancient sage, a wealthy, powerful, successful, Solomon-like figure who found himself wrestling with questions of meaning even though he had achieved and acquired just about everything a human being can in this life. The basic premise of the book we learned at the beginning was that if life under the sun is all there is, it will never be enough. If, if the material world is all that exists, if 70 or 80 years are all we get, then it all adds up to nothing more than this. A puff of smoke that appears for a moment and then vanishes, leaving hardly a trace. But if God is there, if someone and something out there is, is greater than all of this, well, that changes everything. And suddenly now everything takes on new meaning and every day has possibilities to rise. Well, so far, we have considered the pursuits of pleasure and power, exploring the promise and the trap of each. Next week, we'll talk about knowledge and learning, just in time for back-to-school week. Today, we're going to talk about the subject of ambition and all that goes along with it, work and wealth and achievement. Whether you consider yourself an ambitious person or not, I've got to believe that we all have hopes and dreams for the year to come. Maybe you're already beginning to set some goals, to put some dates on the calendar, to name some benchmarks along the way to providing you and your, your loved ones with a good life. But will those activities really deliver a good life? What if you hit all those marks? What if you check off all your boxes when we get to June? Will it be satisfying? Will it be meaningful? Or is all of this striving just a trap that keeps us from just enjoying life and people? Let's see what the teacher has to say about the subject of ambition. We're going to begin here in chapter 2 and then look at chapters 3 and 5 for a moment. Chapter 2, the teacher says, So I hated life because the work that is done under the sun was grievous to me. All of it is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. We talked about that word work, sometimes translated toil. It's not just talking about the jobs that we do that bring home a paycheck. It's all the energy and effort that we expend just to make it through everyday life. This past week, I happened to be talking to our daughter, Kelly. And as I did, I was reminded about how challenging life can be in those early stages of a family. They have three kids, seven, four, and one, and even though they're perfect grandchildren, they can be a handful from time to time. Kelly and her husband are both working as they try to put, make, the, make ends meet as they pursue their careers. So it means getting everyone up and out of the house in the morning, fed and clothed and supplied for the day 
all the drop-offs and the pickups from school and daycare and soccer and dance lessons and then getting them all back home again and then it's dinner and homework and bath and bed and laundry and, and then you wake up and you do it all over again. It was terrifying as I heard her describing and remembered so many years we did that ourselves. But the truth is whatever stage of life we find ourselves in, we can often feel as though we're caught up in this whirlwind of activity. Karen and I have had two or three of those calendar conversations, and we still haven't gotten everything figured out for this coming fall season. And so for all of us at times, it feels like we're chasing the wind, like we'll never catch up. And if we do, it will only change direction and take off again. And what do we have to show for all this toil? The teacher continues, I hated all the things I had toiled for under the sun because I must leave them to the one who comes after me. And who knows whether that person will be wise or foolish, yet they will have control over the fruit of my toil into which I have poured my effort and skill under the sun. This, too, is meaningless. Do you hear the frustration, the helplessness in the teacher's voice? Who knows? Who knows what the outcome will be of everything I have worked for? Who knows what our kids will do with the opportunities we work so hard to provide them with? Who knows what will come of all the years I invest in my company or my industry or my community? Who knows what will happen to this house that we have built and cared for and lived in, what the new owners will do with it after we're gone? We have no control over the outcome of our work, even when we do everything we're supposed to do. So I was working through these verses, I couldn't help but think of Steve Jobs. I mean, if ever anybody had a desire to rise, it was Steve Jobs. I mean, he wasn't content simply to change the world. He wanted to make a ding in the universe, as he famously said. And on a certain level, he did. There's not one of us whose lives have not been impacted and work by some of the things that he created. He became an icon of innovation and industry. Books were written about him. Movies made about him. But it's been five years now since he passed away. The books are no longer bestsellers. The movie is not even recommended on Netflix anymore. <laughs> Apple is in the hands of its successor. And while the numbers have been pretty good for the company, it's been a long time since Apple has come out with some game-changing new product that they were so famous for. Will we still be talking about Steve Jobs 20 or 50 or 100 years from now? Will Apple still be a global giant? If it is, someone else's name will probably be associated with it by then. And they'll say, Steve who? So work is meaningless, the teacher says. Not only because we can't control the outcome, but also because it can make our lives miserable in the present. Verse 22. What do people get for all the toil and anxious striving with which they labor under the sun? All their days, their work is grief and pain, 
Even at night, their minds do not rest. Anxious striving, grief, pain, sleepless nights. Any of those words describe your relationship with work? I mean, we, we work our tails off all day long, whether it's at school or home, work, the office, whatever. And then at night, we toss and turn, wondering if we did enough. Did we make the right decision? And then we begin worrying about all the things that are waiting for us the next day. I'm sure I've told you before about experience I had in my early years as a pastor, feeling kind of overwhelmed by the demands of the whole thing, cranking out sermons week after week after week, and trying to care for so many people at so many different needs, trying to help a church to grow in a challenging environment. And it was tiresome and stressful, and I was wondering if it was worth it all. One day up early, I happened to see the, the garbage truck coming down the street, and, and I watched those guys hop off the truck and throw the cans in and whistle to their buddy, and they would drive onto the next street, and I thought, man, those guys have it made. I mean, you're up early, you're out in the outdoors all day, you get some exercise, you ride on the back of a truck. End of the day, you wash your hands, you go home. I don't, I don't think they lay awake at night worrying about next day's garbage. Of course, the irony of that is if, if anybody could feel like their work was pointless, it would be a sanitation worker. Because no matter how much trash you pick up one day, there's gonna be more tomorrow. So no matter what it is we do for work, it's, it's easy to throw up our hands in despair, like the teacher here, over the meaninglessness of it all. But then suddenly, in verses 24 and 25, he says a surprising thing. He says, a person can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in their toil. This, too, I see, is from the hand of God. For without him, who can eat or find enjoyment? To the person who pleases him, God gives wisdom, knowledge, and happiness. But to the sinner, he gives the task of gathering and storing up wealth to hand it over to the one who pleases God. Now, wait a second. He just finished telling us how meaningless work was, and suddenly he's talking about satisfaction and joy. Now, which is it? Seems like he's talking out both sides of his mouth. And that's why this book of Ecclesiastes can be so challenging to understand because the writer seems to contradict himself as if he can't, doesn't know his own mind. But isn't that true for all of us sometimes? One moment we love our work and we find satisfaction in it and, and another day it just feels like a big waste of time and we're not sure we want to keep it up anymore. So why does the teacher suddenly change his tune? What new insight renders him suddenly hopeful about his work? Well, it has something to do with God. This, too, I see, is from the hand of God. For without him, who can eat or find enjoyment? Now, this is actually the first time in all of his rambling, two chapters worth, that he speaks about God personally. It suddenly hits him that he has the opportunity to work. He has the strength and ability to work. His work has been productive because all of this comes from God. 
God has given him the opportunity and the ability and the fruitfulness. It's part of God's plan and purpose for human beings. He made us to work, to take care of the garden, to be fruitful and multiply, to exercise dominion over this whole earth so that it fulfills its remarkable potential. To the person who pleases him, the teacher says, the, the one who works in partnership with him, God gives wisdom, knowledge, and happiness. Wisdom means skill for living. And so the person who connects with God, God helps them do their work, giving them skill and strength. Knowledge, it's not just information, that's, that's experiences, that's the richness of human experience. Happiness is simply joy and satisfaction. So it's beginning to sound like good news. Like work doesn't have to be chasing after the wind. It can be meaningful and satisfying and beautiful when we see our work and do our work in relationship with God. So which is it? A promise or a trap? Well, you know, he keeps coming back to this wind metaphor. And I don't know a lot about sailing, but what I do know is that the same wind can blow a boat in two very different directions, can it? It all depends on how you set the tiller or the rudder or whatever it is you call that thing that steers a boat. <laughs> that same wind can drive a boat this way or that way, all depending on the set of the rudder. And that's how it seems to be with work and ambition and achievement. It can be a source of stress and futility, or it can be a source of satisfaction and significance. It all depends on how you set the tiller of your heart. Ambition can drive us toward God and his good purposes, or it can carry us away from God as we chase our own ambitions and dreams. So just when you're beginning, we're beginning to get a glimmer of hope here, the teacher doubles down again on the meaninglessness of work. Chapter 3. Man's fate is like that of the animals. The same fate awaits them both. As one dies, so dies the other. Everything is meaningless. All go to the same place. All come from dust, and to dust all return. Well, that's a happy thought. <laughs> the teacher looks around and says, everything dies. Animals die. People die. They all just turn into matter, dust of the ground from which they came. And if that's true of living things, it certainly is true of material things. All that we acquire and achieve, whether it's clothes or houses or skyscrapers or diplomas or degrees or trophies, they all just disintegrate eventually. And it brings to mind the, the words of that old Kansas tune from the 1970s, from an album grimly titled, Point of No Return. Same old song. Just a drop of water in an endless sea. All we do crumbles to the ground, though we refuse to see. Dust in the wind. Don't hang on. Nothing lasts forever but the earth and sky. It slips away 
and all your money won't another minute buy. Dust in the wind. All we are is dust in the wind. Now talk about pessimism literature. The song was written by a musician, lead guitarist, and composer for the group named Kerry Livgren back in 1977. He wrote the song during a time of spiritual searching. Here he had fame and fortune, talent, good looks, everything a person could want in life, and yet he wasn't satisfied. He searched through all the belief systems of the world, one by one by one, and it had come up empty. It's just dust in the wind, he said. And that's where the teacher seems to land. If everything we accomplish, even our very own bodies, are simply going to turn to dust, then what's the point? So now ambition is beginning to feel more and more like a trap. Because no matter how hard we work, we can't control the outcome of our work. No matter what it is we do for work, it's a source of stress and frustration. No matter what we accomplish with our work, it's all going to fade away eventually. And finally, the teacher tells us, no matter how much we get, it's never going to be enough. Chapter 5, verse 10. Whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. This, too, is meaningless. Now, certainly, one of the reasons we work is to provide a living for ourselves and for those we love. And one of the reasons we want to rise is so that we can make more money and provide an even better living for ourselves and for those we love. And there's nothing wrong with that. The only problem the teacher tells us is that no matter how much we get, it will never be enough. Maybe you heard the news report I heard this past week that 80% that of Americans are living paycheck to paycheck. In other words, counting down the days until that check comes and they can catch up on their bills and, and put food on the table for another couple of weeks. And it's true across the board, even of people making six-figure incomes, paycheck to paycheck. I wonder, be honest, how much time did you spend this week imagining what you would do if you had won that $770 million jackpot. I know, I know, you promised God you would tithe if he let you win. How much time? In the end, the winner took it in a lump sum payment, 330-some million dollars. She seemed ecstatic about it. She was going to quit her job and start to relax. It all sounded wonderful. According to the teacher... Her life's about to get a lot more complicated. Verse 11, as goods increase, so do those who consume them. And what benefit are they to owners other than to feast their eyes on them? The sleep of a laborer is sweet, whether they eat little or much. But as for the rich, their abundance permits them no sleep. How many friends and family members, and financial advisors, and fundraisers are going to come after that woman in the months to come. How much time and energy does it take to manage $330 million? 
dollars. It's not easy to spend that much money. How much more does she suddenly have to think about when she lays her head to the pillow every night? The track record shows that the trajectory for a lottery winners is not always a happy one. So it leads the teacher to a pretty grim conclusion. I have seen a grievous evil under the sun. Everyone comes naked from their mother's womb, and as everyone comes, so they depart. They take nothing from their toil that they can carry in their hands. Even if a person manages to acquire wealth and hang on to it all the way through their lives, when it's time to leave this world, they can't take it with them. Nothing from their toil can they carry in their hands. I can't read that verse without remembering a funeral I did for a man many years ago. A man I knew fairly well, a friend of mine actually. A hard-working man who built a business from the ground up, provided a good living for his young family, only to die of a heart attack alone at his office on a Sunday afternoon. He was buried in his tuxedo with $20 bills wrapped around his fingers and a card with his favorite saying on his chest, he who dies with the most toys wins. It didn't feel like a win to those of us who were missing him that day. As everyone comes, so they depart. And what do they gain since they toil for the wind? Is that all there is? Is that all we are? Dust in the wind? Just when we're about to throw up our hands in despair, once again the teacher suddenly changes his tune. Briefly but poignantly, he resets the rudder of his life, so to speak, back and tacks towards God. This is what I have observed to be good, he says, that it is appropriate for a person to eat and to drink and to find satisfaction in their toilsome labor under the sun during the few days of life God has given them under the sun. Moreover, when God gives someone wealth and possessions and the ability to enjoy them, to accept their lot and be happy in their toil, this is a gift from God. Now that word appropriate can also be translated fitting or even beautiful. So it turns out that work can be a source of joy and satisfaction and meaning. And it begins when we remember that work and achievement and ambition are all gifts of God given to us in order to draw us toward him. I mean, isn't that why you give a gift to someone? Isn't it about the relationship to draw you closer? I mean, if it's only about making their life happy or easier, you could give the gift anonymously, and sometimes we do that. But most of the time, we give gifts personally because we want to say something to that person. We want them to know that we value them, that, that, that we take delight in them, that we want to play a continuing part in their lives. And so it is God gives us the gift of work and even ambition so that we might be drawn to him, that we might receive those gifts with thanksgiving, that we might ask for his help as we do our work from day to day. 
and that we might recognize that our work is his work as well. The work of bringing justice and beauty and productivity to this planet he has placed in our care. That we might do something good in this world in partnership with him. And that's true. That's true whether you're the CEO of an innovative giant company or if you're a sanitation worker making a neighborhood safer and cleaner and healthier or you're a parent or a grandparent raising the next generation of Americans and Christ followers. You see, we were made to rise because we were made for God. We were made to live every day of our lives and every aspect of our lives in relationship with the God who made us. Made us for his glory and for his purposes to do something good in this world. Remember the verse we looked at a few weeks ago, the verse that I believe unlocks the mystery of Ecclesiastes and the mystery of life from chapter 3, verse 11. He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the human heart. Time and eternity. Yes, we were made to enjoy this life. Pleasure and power and achievement, those are all good gifts God gives us to enjoy properly in relationship with him. But we were also made for more than this life. We were made for more than paychecks and promotions more than, than honor rolls and accolades. We were made for more than, than, than a gold watch and a comfortable retirement. We were made to rise because we were made for God. To be and do our best in relationship with him. And anything less than that will never be enough. Well, football season is here again. Tom Brady is on the cover of Sports Illustrated again. If anybody exhibits that desire to rise, it is certainly Tom Brady. He's just turned 40, which typically is the end of the line for NFL players. And yet he's still going strong. Now he's got five Super Bowl rings. He's known here in New England at least as the greatest of all time. He's got the girl. He's got the money. He's got more than his 15 minutes of fame. So why is he still playing? Why is he still pushing himself and even putting himself at risk? It seems like something's driving him. As I thought about all this, I recalled a 60 Minutes interview that Brady gave a handful of years ago. Maybe some of you remember it. I went searching and found a scratchy YouTube version of it. Just give a listen to 90 seconds or so of this interview. Tom Brady, the quarterback of the New England Patriots, is not only one of the NFL's best players, he's one of the NFL's great stories. At the tender age of 30, he has already won three Super Bowls, an accomplishment that ranks him with some of the best quarterbacks ever to play the game. And he's having one of the greatest seasons in pro football history. When we first reported on him back in 2005, he seemed underrated and almost overlooked. He doesn't have the arm of Peyton Manning, and he doesn't have tattoos, and he doesn't take steroids, and he's never held out for more money. 
All he knows how to do is win. <laughs> it's what you always wanted. <laughs> You're right. You're right. It has. And I didn't think it came with all the other baggage, though. In addition to his success on the field and his sex appeal off it, there is also the $60 million 10-year contract to play with the Patriots. I mean, I'm making more money now than I ever thought I could ever make playing football. <laughs> but with all that money, fame, and career accomplishments, we were surprised to hear this from him. Why do I have three Super Bowl rings and, and still think there's something greater out there for me? I mean, maybe a lot of people would say, hey, man, this is what it is. I reached my goal, my dream, my life is... Me, I thank God. It's got to be more than this. What's the answer? I wish I knew. I wish I knew. Pretty revealing. Pretty vulnerable. I don't know if you could catch all of the language, but at one point he said, why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still think there's something greater out there for me? What's the answer? Steve Croft says. I wish I knew, he says. I wish I knew. Now, admittedly, Brady was younger then, and he's accomplished a lot since then. Two more Super Bowl rings, for one thing. But he's also beginning to get a life beyond football. He's got a growing family. He's got a thriving business enterprise, TB12. He's on a mission to help people eat and get healthy. He's done a lot of charitable work for Best Buddies International, a variety of other organizations. He's even lost the baggy pants and learned how to dress more fashionably. <laughs> but has he found that something greater that he's still looking for? I don't know. Sure seems like he's still chasing something. The irony is that he pretty much answered his own question at one point. And again, I'm not sure you could hear it, but this is what he said. God, there's got to be more than this. <laughs> and I believe that God is exactly who he's looking for. The God who made him, who gave him that talent and that presence and that durability the God who placed within him that desire to rise, to excel. But it wasn't just so he could be the best quarterback of all time. It's so that he could be the best human being he was capable of becoming, the person that God made him to be. The God who made Tom Brady uniquely to do something good and beautiful and eternally significant with his life. I don't know that he's found that yet. I hope he will. I pray that he will. And who knows? Maybe he'll be driving to the stadium one day and pass our Grace Chapel Foxborough sign and <laughs> drop in for a service. All right? Amen. Now, just by way of contrast, we spoke earlier about that musician, Kerry Livgren who wrote Dust in the Wind in a time of spiritual searching and lostness. Just a few years after writing that song, a friend shared with him the good news of Jesus. And he quickly became a Christ follower. Shortly released a, another album, this one entitled Seeds of Change. No longer dust in the wind, he says. Now we're dust in the hands of God. 
Now we are seeds of the kingdom, scattered by the wind of God's spirit to the everyday people and places of our lives in order that the, the goodness of the kingdom might take root right where we are and begin to grow into something beautiful. So what about you? What drives you? Have you found that something greater that brings meaning and beauty and joy to everything that you do? Or are you still chasing your own dreams and ambitions, saying, I wish I knew? Have you set the rudder of your life and your work towards God and his good purposes? Or again, are you chasing your own thing, hoping it leads you somewhere satisfying? As you look to the year to come, as you set goals for yourself, as you make your plans, as you fill your calendar, remember that you were made for more. More than paychecks and promotions, more than honors and accolades, more than comfort and security. You were made to rise because you are made for God and his good and eternal purposes. And anything less than that will never, ever be enough. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for speaking words of hope into this challenging dimension of our lives. Thanking, thank you for making a life of meaning and fulfillment possible through faith in your son, Jesus Christ, who is ready to forgive us for all our failures and foolishness, all our small-minded, self-centered thinking, and able to set us free to become the people you were meant us to be and to do the work that you placed us here on this earth to do. Lord, if there are any here who still don't know, I pray that by your spirit you might open their hearts to hear and receive this good news of life abundant and eternal. And for those of us who do know, Lord, may we set the rudders of our lives in your direction as we head into this new year, that it might be for your glory, for our joy, and for the good of the world. In your name we pray, amen.